a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 10, Star Wars number 2, cover date August 1977. Welcome back to the Comic Book Time Machine. I'm Ben Avery, and I just got back from 1977. Now, this is my third trip back in time to read Marvel sci-fi comics from the 70s, but only my second month doing the official reading where I'm using Star Wars to guide me through Marvel's sci-fi comic book licensed history. And I have to say, this has been a fun month. We'll be talking about Star Wars issue number two. We'll be talking about 2001 issue number nine, John Carter issue number three, And we'll be talking about a number one issue. May 1977, the release date of these books, is a very interesting and fun month for me to go back in time in the comic book time machine. Also, keep that date in mind, May 1977. But before we get to the comic books that we're going to talk about, we do have some news to talk about. and Some very interesting news, especially considering what I'm already talking about with these original Marvel comics coming out around the time of the first Star Wars movie and set in that period of time in the Star Wars history, but also then the actual comic books that I'm talking about. Now, the first thing is an omnibus. This omnibus is actually collecting these comic books I'm talking about. It's Star Wars, the original Marvel years, volume one omnibus. This is a $125 volume. Uh, Amazon has it for pre-order for only $95. I don't know if it'll go lower than that, but this will feature uh, issues one through, I believe it's 44 and annual number one of the Marvel Star Wars comic books. So if you are wanting to read along with me, here's your opportunity. It's, it's being given to you in January of next year. I'm excited because I do know a lot of times with these omnibuses, they include other material. Now for John Carter, Warlord of Mars, they only had the one letters page so far. Um, I do have a Devil Dinosaur omnibus that includes uh, letters pages for almost all of the the issues, nine issues that went into that omnibus. And we'll talk more about Devil Dinosaur later because it does tie in in some ways to the 2001 book that that Jack Kirby did. It's very much like the uh, the spiritual successor, the spiritual sequel to what he was doing with 2001. The other news is that they have announced what the official titles will be for the Star Wars comics that Marvel will be printing that are going to be new. These are coming in 2015. Um, they have three titles, and one is going to be called Star Wars. It'll be an ongoing series. January 2015 is the, the first issue. There'll be Star Wars Darth Vader, which will be coming in February 2015, and Star Wars Princess Leia, which will be a mini series coming in March 2015. All of them will, uh, I guess, take place between uh, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And so 
there is I'll, I'll have, uh, show notes for that. And if you go to welcome to <laughs> welcome to level seven, wrong podcast, um, <laughs> comic book time machine dot com slash go go Godzilla, and you'll find a link to the San Diego Comic Con announcement and to the Amazon page for the Star Wars hardcover omnibus. So I think that's enough news. Time to move on to part one of our episode. Part one, swing that lightsaber, Ben. So the release date for Star Wars issue number two was May 10th, 1977. Now that's an important date because May 25th was the release for the movie Star Wars. And so this is the second issue of Star Wars. It's out before the movie has hit theaters. It is on the spinner racks all around the United States, maybe even in Canada. Who knows? But it's out there before the movie is even hit. This was part of their plan. They wanted it to be like that. Part of the marketing for the movie was to have these comic books come out. This comic book, Star Wars number two, has a lot of interesting things to it. Um, first of all, on the cover right there, it says Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy film of all. It's not even out yet, and they're making that prediction. And, well, uh, they're they're... We'll talk about it later, but I think they're actually pretty close. And then it says, Luke Skywalker strikes back. I don't know who he's striking back against, uh, but if you look at the cover, there is quite the bar fight going on there in the cantina. Luke Skywalker is shooting someone with his blaster. Some of those creatures are coming after him, looking very menacing, very threatening. And Luke is saying, and I love this, I, I love this cover because of this swing that lightsaber ben or we're finished honestly i look at a cover like this and i just think to myself even if it wasn't star wars i would be interested in picking up this book knowing that i do know that comic book covers oftentimes do not accurately represent what you're going to get inside and this cover is no exception you are not going to get this bar fight or that dialogue, or possibly you're not even going to get Luke Skywalker striking back, but strikes back is a very interesting turn of phrase to use here on this cover. Now we still have Roy Thomas as the script or editor. We'll still have Howard Chaikin involved with the art as the illustrator. We're going to talk more about Howard Chaikin's role with this issue later. We now have Steve Lea Lola, Lea Aloha, um, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce his name, but it is actually spelled Leia, like Princess Leia. And then that A from Leia is also part of Aloha. So Leia Aloha, I think. But he's he's listed as the embellisher and as the colorist. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, we'll talk about the, the contents of this comic. Starts off where we left off uh, with issue one. And in issue one, that brought us up through the movie up until the point where sand, uh, the, the Tuscan Raiders, the Sandmen, attacked Luke and knocked him down. Well, the strike when they actually hit Luke happened between issues. Luke is now unconscious. He's laying in the sand. There's some awkwardness to the positioning of some of the uh, the foreshortening and, the, and the, the position of his body. I don't know. Uh, and we'll talk about the art again later. Um, but this is the scene where he's laying on the ground. Obi-Wan comes and scares the sand people away. And then uh, they go to Obi-Wan's place where Obi-Wan tells him about Jedi stuff and lightsaber stuff. And they, they watch the holographic Princess Leia tell him that 
You are our last hope. Um, it does not have the line, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope, but it does have a lot of the other stuff about Alderaan and, and you served in the Old Republic and the Clone Wars and all that kind of thing. Then from there, we go into Darth Vader and three panels on the Death Star with Darth Vader with Princess Leia, where they're going to um, give her the the truth, truthy serum thing. I don't know. This is Leia's torture scene. And the the droid looks very different than the one in the movie. It's very quick. And you almost don't know what's going on there. Same as it was in the movie for me. Um, when I first saw the movie, actually a number of times, I saw the movie a number of times and didn't realize quite what was going on there with that droid thing that had that needle on it. That was very threatening to me. I didn't understand why. It just, there's a needle on that droid and they're, they're going to poke her with it. I don't know. It was scary to me. Uh, in this, you don't have the, the droid with the needle, not quite as threatening. And so therefore it's almost, almost too vague, but, uh, we go right, right away back to Tatooine where, you know, the Jawas have been attacked and then Luke goes to his aunt and uncle's place. Go back to the Death Star real quick. There's a lot of quick cutting in this. We have two panels on the Death Star again. Just Darth Vader talking to Tarkin. And then we go back to Tatooine. And Luke is now back at with Obi-Wan. He's like, I want to go with you. So they go to Mos Eisley. Here's the bar fight. Uh, and that's the part where the one alien confronts Luke and says, you know, I don't like you. And he doesn't like you either. And Obi-Wan steps in. And... Uh, the, the fight, the bar fight is one panel. You have, well, two panels if you want to include Obi-Wan gripping his lightsaber. Well, one panel as he strikes. It's not that violent. Uh, there's a kind of an impact point. There's no arm on the floor. Uh, so I, I do wonder how much of this scene... I, I my, my understanding is that they did a lot of reshoots about the cantina stuff. And so I, I do wonder how much of the scene, you know, that as it's presented here is, is what we would have actually gotten from from the movie if they hadn't done all the reshoots. Um, going back to Chewbacca in this one, in this issue, he looks like Chewbacca. He's on model and you have Grand Moff Tarkin. He looks good. I, I mentioned that we had that cutaway scene there. He looks good in this Darth Vader. He's still hard to draw. He's still hard to draw, but you know, beyond that, it, they're pretty on target here with the, uh, the characters faces and the, the droid designs for the, the primary characters and the, uh, stormtroopers and all that. And a lot of the creatures in the cantina too look so good in this, uh, you have the scene with Han Solo talking to Obi-Wan Kenobi. You also have the scene where Greedo comes and confronts Han Solo. It's a one-page scene. It's very, very quick. And Greedo pulls his gun on Han and says, Going somewhere, Solo? No translation. It's just all dialogue is in English. Um, Han doesn't shoot first. Well, uh, Han, I guess you could say he shoots first because he's the only one who shoots. Uh, Greedo doesn't try and shoot him. Han just fires. It's relatively bloodless. Um, it's just quick dirty and there there's a shot and there's an explosion in Greedo's gut as he flies away from the table and then Han walks away and says the famous line sorry for the mess from there we go to some special edition stuff and that is uh, Jabba the Hutt's scene with Han Solo at the Millennium Falcon and 
<laughs> Jabba the Hutt. He looks really interesting. He's kind of like a a walrus without any tusks. He's got those kind of these big long uh, not mutton chops. I mean, they're whiskers, you know, but they're long hanging off his cheeks, off his jowls there. Um, and he's got this uniform, a very, very nice stylized uniform. And he's, it, it almost looks like a formal uniform for Aquaman. It's all orange with green boots and green gloves. And it has some trimming and stuff like that. Uh, it, it doesn't look like Jabba the Hutt as we know him at all. And that, of course, comes from the fact that there was no reference for Jabba the Hutt. Uh, and so they actually just made up the design. Uh, I do want to also bring attention to <laughs> Chewbacca's dialogue in this comic book. Um, you know, a- after just having seen um, Guardians of the Galaxy with Groot's dialogue, I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot. And, you know, Rocket can understand exactly what he's saying. And I was really given a, a very much a, a, a Han Solo Chewbacca vibe when I was watching Rocket and Groot doing their stuff. And so in this, uh, Chewbacca, he speaks his Wookiee language. His first line is gronk, um, which I, th- I think is just like the comical sound effect for I'm not sure. But then his second line is it's pretty good, too. Uh, it's gronk, not gronk, gronk. And again, I think that's just comic book um comic book uh sound effects for and then you have his final line in the book cronk and so i do have to say i think that the 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 prize for best sound effect uh this month in in all the comic books we're we're reading right now it has to go to his second line gronk i I just love the the spelling and the just the the sound that it puts in my mind you know Again, they didn't have reference to try and mimic. And how do you mimic in writing uh, Chewbacca's dialogue anyway? I mean, it's just that kind of back of the throat mixed in with reverb and, and animal sound effects and stuff like that. It's a, R2-D2 is much easier to emulate on the page. I'm, I'm really curious how uh, Chewbacca's dialogue is going to be when we get into some of the actual uh, issues beyond the movie where – the people who are making the comics have actually seen the movie instead of like what we're getting here where uh, they've maybe seen an unfinished print. But it's also quite possible that at this point, by the time they were making this issue, they hadn't yet. So this issue takes us from the point where Luke is rescued by Obi-Wan Kenobi to the point where they make their escape uh, from Tatooine and they're, they're flying away in the Millennium Falcon and making the jump to light speed. And the jump to light speed is a really, it's an effective panel. Now, the action stuff, though, the actual action of this book, and by action, I mean, you know, the shootout in the spaceport and then the escape as they're flying away, flying past the Star Destroyers and everything like that. There's only, what, one, two, three pages as they make it their escape in this whole entire thing. Now, there's, the book itself is only 18 pages uh, of, of artwork, that is. And so, you know, they've got a lot of stuff to do with this story. But I was surprised to see how little action there actually was going on there. So at this point in time, our uh, creative team, though, for issue two has been shaken up slightly. Uh, Roy Thomas still writing. Howard Chaikin still illustrating. But we brought in Steve Lealoha as the inker. 
And that's why, you know, I, I look at some of these and the artwork has less detail. You can still see the photo referencing of some of the images. And, but there's, there's a loss of detail. And I'm wondering, you know, if part of that is from the deadline, but I'm also thinking it's because we're using an anchor here. And Roy Thomas, he actually uh, has a magazine called Alter Ego that he edits and, and created. And he did an article about all this stuff. In issue 68, the article was called Star Wars, the comic book that saved Marvel. Think we're kidding? Read on. How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Star Wars with Reservations. A Personal Retrospective by Roy Thomas. And in that article, he mentions that around this time after issue one, that Howard Chaykin decided he could only do rough pencils or layouts rather than full penciling and inking had something to do with a deadline crunch of some sort is what Ray Thomas says. So they brought in this uh, Steve Lealoa who was brought in. uh, That was Howard Chaykin's suggestion to finish the job on issues two and on. And the problem was the layouts were so loose that it seems like they, there wasn't a very good, good match here. And I I think that Lealoa did a good job with things there are some panels, like I said, where it's very, very evident that there is uh, photo referencing going on. Uh, and I think that in some of these panels, he actually had the photo reference to go on. Lucasfilm was not happy that Chaikin was not drawing everything. As Roy Thomas says in his article, um, before long, though, it was made known to me that George, Charlie, and company were not happy that Howard wasn't doing the full illustration. I told them there was nothing I could do about it. Howard was a freelancer, and I couldn't chain him to a drawing board, which is probably a, a nice thing for him to to do, to not chain Howard Chaykin to a drawing board to do you know Star Wars comics. Another reaction, though, actually comes from Howard Chaykin. In this article, uh, Roy Thomas reached out to different people that he worked with on these books, including Howard Chaykin, and, and sent emails to them and asked them for their thoughts about it. And so Howard Chaykin's email uh, back to Roy Thomas, it was interesting because um, – well, I'll just read it here. He says, I've got nothing from that period other than a profound regret that if I had some prescience of this phenomenon it was to become, I'd have worked harder. And then he um, mentions things about you know the money, that uh, there was no extra money coming their way even after the, the project was a huge hit and the movie was a huge hit. And then he mentions that um, that poster, that original poster he had done, uh, someone had just paid $40,000 for the original artwork. And he says about that, uh, some people have too much disposable income for their own damned good. So that's, that's Howard Chaykin's own response to some of the stuff that happened with the Star Wars stuff. Meanwhile, you have uh, this new guy coming in, and that's this, uh, Steve Lealo- Lealoha. And he... Uh, he has some really basically he looks at this and I think he says some really fun memories of of the, just the whole working on the Star Wars comic book. Turns out he was a friend of Howard Chaykin and the reason he even got the job was because Howard Chaykin mentioned that he would be only inking the first issue and needed an anchor for beyond that and Steve Lealoha uh, volunteered and wound up it says he uh, inked the middle four issues of the six part adaptation. So then he talks about some of his experiences meeting with Charlie Lippincott and um, getting to see the rough cut screening and sitting next to Philip Kaufman, Brian De Palma and Tom Orzachowski. 
And then he sa- he mentioned some of the stuff that he, about the movie that that was interesting, like the newly added scenes, like the chess game. And this is where I get that idea that the cantina sequence had just been reshot because he says here that he was interested in seeing that the cantina sequence had just been reshot. The film was scheduled for release three months later, and it seemed like it was only half finished. And he was surprised by that. Then he gives a fun story here. I'm going to go ahead and read the this, this story that he has here. But he says, a short time later, I visited the Los Angeles production offices on the Universal lot to see if I could get a few more reference shots. It was remarkably difficult to find a clear shot of Darth Vader, which back, goes back to that idea of Darth Vader is hard to draw, and of one of Princess Leia actually smiling. <laughs> As I got there, Harrison Ford was just on his way out, so I showed him the pencil pages I had with me. He's a handsome fella, he said, indicating the Han Solo figure on the splash page of issue number five. Everyone was very helpful, and I even found a picture of the princess smiling. So that's uh, Steve Lealoha's reminiscence about the the whole um, Star Wars experience on the Star Wars comic book. Now, the other thing I wanted to say was that name, Steve Lealoha, it was familiar to me. And I looked him up. He has a large body of work, but now I know where I recognize his name from. It's from two places near and dear to my heart. One is he was an inker on Secret Wars 2, and the other is he inked a number of Howard the Duck issues. So there's that. And, and Daniel, I can just hear him dropping his head, sighing as I bring those up. But overall, I liked this issue. I, I thought uh, I felt like it was well-paced, and there are some really good-looking panels. Um, Han Solo shooting from the ramp of the Millennium Falcon is a really dynamic uh, panel. It looks like it's I I haven't gone back and rewatched the movie recently, but it, it sticks out in my mind as as looking exactly the way that that scene that that shot uh, would have looked. Um, he's shooting the the blaster, and there's some really good storytelling going on in that panel. Uh, Greedo's death is brutal. Han, like I said, doesn't shoot first; he shoots only and. <laughs> He gives Greedo that gut blast, and it's just quick and violent and painful looking. And the sequence works nicely, and I think it's a good adaptation of what we got on the screen. Leiloa's art over Shaken's layouts is there's some awkwardness at times, uh, but there's life to it and energy throughout most of the book. I'm, I'm really, really uh, liking what I'm seeing here, and yes, it does look different than issue one. I don't think it would have jarred me as much. If I had just been reading these issues and not like looking into some of the background stuff. And of course, there's also something to be said about the pacing of the adaptation. Roy Thomas, he does a great job of taking uh, someone else's story that's not even from the comic book medium. It's from a completely different medium and making it work in this serialized form because he's not just doing a graphic novel. He's doing six chapters of one story. And that's that's not easy. Uh, that's something I do have experience doing. I with uh, the George R. R. Martin's The Hedge Knight, uh, the first two Hedge Knight books, I had to take that one novella, turn them into, or rather both of those novellas, and turn them into six issues of a comic book. And with The Hedge Knight three, which I just finished, that was just one great big long graphic novel, and it was so freeing and so much easier to just know, okay, I'm just doing one story that's a hundred and some pages instead of having to do six stories that are 20-some pages, six chapters, rather, that are 20-some pages. And so here, Roy Thomas, he has uh, he has a challenge. He has to do – he has to take 
uh, a movie, which, you know, they might say to you, your movie can only be this many minutes. You can't go over 90 minutes or over 88 minutes or under, you know, 80 minutes or over three hours or whatever. But when you have that one chunk of time, you can do whatever you want within that and say, this scene needs to be this long. This scene needs to be this long. We have to maybe trim some off of there so we can fit it into the time allotted, but you can make the scenes fit and, and make the scenes longer or shorter based on what you need to do. Roy Thomas is facing a situation where he's taking those scenes and making them fit into 18 pages and also then trying to make these six chapters into six chapters that feel like you're getting an actual you're, you're getting something out of the story you're you've pl- plopped down your what 35 cents for this issue and you're going to get your 35 cents worth of story and so he has to um find the moment in time that makes for the best cliffhanger he has to find five cliffhangers that are going to bring people back next month five cliffhangers within that one story but not only five cliffhangers, five cliffhangers that were going to end or happen rather at the right point in time in the book. So at the end of those 18 pages, where does the cliffhanger fall? And so at this point in time, you know, just being a Star Wars comic book is not enough to bring people back the next month. You know, if it's a stinker, this is only issue number two. And so you have to find that moment. You have to find that hook and you have to do it without crowding the story and just cramming it full of stuff. Or you have to do it and let the story breathe. It can't, you have to, there has to be, uh, it has to feel like it's natural storytelling. And so that's where these, these two quick moments where we cut back to princess Leia on the death star and Darth Vader on the death star, just for three panels and then two panels. It feels a little, cramped at those at those points but they had to happen one way or another they're important details uh when we get into the next issue we'll be seeing more of princess leia but that brings up the other thing is that you know princess leia two panels unless you include her hologram and so then she's in you know a few more than that but this movie is a two-hour movie with a nice size cast of characters and all of them are characters that no, you're not familiar with. Now that's usually the situation with a movie, but what Roy Thomas is facing here is a situation where you can't introduce everyone in the beginning of the story. By the time issue one is done, he doesn't have room to fit. You know, we don't know who Han Solo is. We don't know who Chewbacca is. We haven't met Obi-Wan Kenobi in the flesh yet. They've talked about him. And so issue one, I feel like Roy Thomas has, has found the hook that he needed. And it comes from the structure of the movie itself. But issue one is about Luke. Uh, Leia is in there, but um, she's not the primary focus. R2-D2, C-3PO, they're in there. But um, really, this is about – issue one is about Luke. Issue two is bringing in that secondary cast, bringing in Obi-Wan and bringing in Han and Chewie. And giving them character moments that they – can, we can get to know the characters getting to see Obi-Wan talk about being a Jedi, talk about the lightsaber and all that stuff. Han Solo shooting Greedo, uh, Chewbacca saying his dialogue. Grunk. All right. Uh, now, like I said, the movie's laid out like this too, but here in serialized form, it feels episodic and that's what Roy Thomas has to do, but it's, it's natural and it's building the 
the the broad story and it's giving enough time to each character enough time to give a background not an origin we don't know everything about them but we know enough about them to be able to go for the ride with them uh, one of the things i appreciate about star wars is that it's a simple story but it's a story well told and so far in the comic books still a story well told so next issue here's what we're promised we're promised out of hyperspace and into the death star finally i i want to mention um I, there's a store that just opened two blocks from my house two blocks from my house there's a store and in that store there are toys lots and lots and lots of toys and also comics. This place is called Tom's Vintage Toys, and I will have a link to the Facebook page for Tom's Vintage Toys on uh, on in the show notes again, which is you know, like I said, comicbooktimemachine.com slash go go Godzilla. But uh, he has a dollar bin, and in that dollar bin, I went there and I couldn't believe my eyes. I found issues one through three of Star Wars. Now, these are the reprints of the issues, but they're exact reprints. And so I'm, I was so excited, so excited to find these, snatch them for three bucks. And yeah, I mean, sure, it's not the first printing, but I don't care about that stuff. My comic book collection is not worth anything because it's just stuff that I find interesting and enjoyable, which is why I do this podcast, because this is stuff I find interesting and enjoyable. And I mentioned last episode how I was disappointed that I didn't have the letters page for star wars and because i i i noticed in almost all of the sci-fi stuff i've been reading well no in logan's run john carter and 2001 all three of those books had a mission statement page and in star wars it turns out there's actually two mission statements pages one is called star wars the ultimate space fantasy i don't know who wrote it but it basically it gives background to the universe that the story is set in. It gives background to the people who made the movie uh, and it gives background to the people who are making the comic books and, and basically giving them their, um, you know, their credentials. And so Roy Thomas, who was involved with unknown worlds of science fiction and wrote about a Cree, the, the scroll Cree war. Okay. You know, getting, giving him that sci-fi cred, Howard Chaikin, who had worked on Solomon Kane and on Monarch star stalker, which Monarch Starstalker, I've got that somewhere around here. I've read it. I got it really cheap for a dollar or something like that. It's a Marvel Comics Presents issue. I can't find it. I want to reread it because I want to go back and see, you know, oh, what did, this is one of the reasons why George Lucas liked what Howard Chaikin did. Talks about George Lucas and, you know, his work on um, different movies like uh, American Graffiti and that kind of thing. And it also talks about, um, the different actors and everything like that. So uh, there is one interesting thing that you do get here, and that's not so much the comic book mission statement, but it's George Lucas's mission statement. There's this quote from George Lucas about why he made Star Wars, and I love this quote. I, I love this, even though it probably was you know a quote that he created for press releases and stuff like that, but it really gets down to the heart of why he wanted to do Star Wars. He says, uh, and, and we've heard we've heard these things said time and time again by him. But he says, I've always loved adventure films. After I finished American Graffiti, I came to realize that since the demise of the Western, there hasn't been much in the mythological fantasy genre available to the film audience. Side note from me, I've always considered Westerns to be fantasy and to be a part of, you know, our mythological, our American myth mythology. And so it's interesting to see him say that here. Also interesting that his space fantasy really has a lot of Western elements to it. So he said, instead, so instead of making 
Isn't it terrible what's happening to mankind movies, which is how I began with his movie THX 1138. I decided I'd try to fill that gap. I'd make a film so rooted in the in imagination that the grimness of everyday life would not follow the audience into the theater. In other words, for two hours, they could forget. I'm trying to reconstruct a genre that's been lost and bring it to a new dimension so that the elements of space, fantasy, adventure, suspense, and fun all work and feed off each other. So in a way, Star Wars is a movie for the kid in all of us. And that right there embodies exactly what I love about Star Wars and what I don't love about some of the other things that Star Wars has given us. And by those other things, I mean some of the ripoffs that were trying to be Star Wars, but that weren't able to tap into what he's talking about here. And also some of the expanded universe Star Wars stuff and even some of the uh, official canons material. I'm not going to complain about the prequels. I've gained a new appreciation about the prequels after I revisited them recently with my own children when it wasn't me, the fanboy walking into the theater with my expectations. So I, I've become forgiving of what, was given to us in the prequels, but I will say that they're not as fun as what we see here. The other page we get is star warriors. And that's the, the official letter column. And it gives the address care of Marvel comics group, etc. And then it's giving us the story behind star Wars, the movie and the comic mag by Roy Thomas. This is his mission statement. This is Roy Thomas saying, you know, this is why I came to like Star Wars. I met so and so, I met um, Lippincott, Charlie Lippincott. Um, I actually met George Lucas before, he says, um, and that George Lucas was interested in seeing his painting of Scrooge McDuck actually painted by Carl Barks. And goes on again to introduce the, the people who are involved. But again, this is the prophecy right here. At the end of that, he says, and Star Wars, both as film and as comic book, is going to be just what it says out there on the first page. The greatest space fantasy of all. So, like I said, I think it's true for the movie, Mr. Thomas, but what about the comic? Well, we're just going to have to wait and see, true believers. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, 2001 A Space Odyssey, number nine, the penultimate issue.